Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. Recently, I showed up to a lunch appointment, and I was a bit early, which is rare for me, if you've met with me for lunch. And so I sat down at a table, uh, but they never showed up, so I stood up because I got stood up. That's what you do. And I wonder if that's where the term comes from. Or so I thought, because I actually realized soon after that I was the one who got the time wrong. The problem was me, but it was amazing to me upon reflection how quickly I assumed that it was their fault, not mine. I assumed the worst, and I think we all assume the worst, don't we? Because we've all been, in a way, stood up in different ways, haven't we? Haven't we all been, in some way, on the receiving end of a broken promise? And I think these broken promises can be as small as, I'll meet you for lunch, or perhaps as big as, I will love you forever, no matter what. And these broken promises that we accumulate over life, they start to pile up and they begin to change us from the inside out, don't they? We stop trusting others. We start assuming the worst in others. And I think if you allow yourself to be honest this morning, doesn't it sometimes feel like God himself? One whom we are gathered to worship has stood you. Doesn't it sometimes feel that way? Now, if you don't feel that way this morning, there is somebody in your life who does. At work, or even in your family. Well, I believe this dynamic is why we have the book of Hebrews in our Bible. Uh, this week, we are actually returning to our series on the book of Hebrews. And this morning, we are going to explore and actually finish chapter 6, starting in verse 13. If you have your own Bible, I would encourage you to open there. We also have these scripture journals that you are free to take. Again, this is Hebrews chapter 6, and we're going to look at the remainder of chapter 6. So that's verse 13 through verse 20. I'll read, and I invite you to follow along with me, and then we'll pray and ask God to show up with His Word. This is His Word. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by these two unchangeable things, that is, his promise and his oath, 
in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. O Lord, with the words, the meager words of my mouth, and the meditation of all of our hearts this morning, be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. And Lord, more than that, would you guide my words in our meditation so that we would see Jesus beautifully this morning. And that he and his beauty would outshine every good thing in our life. We ask for this miracle in Jesus' name. Amen. So sometimes when it's late at night, I'll make a promise to switch the laundry before bed. <laughs> but way too often, uh, despite my promise, my wife Josie, she'll discover wet laundry in the washing machine the next morning, or sometimes the next next morning. That's really not good. I'm getting very familiar with what you do in those situations. You add, you know, you add bleach to the next wash. So at this point, um, whenever I verbally promise to switch the laundry, if she doesn't see me stand up in that moment, the promise is made, um, she just says, never mind, I'll do it. And this is a, a kind of funny, not funny example of how promises work in our relationships day after day. I promise too often means... Maybe. Clinical psychologist Dr. Randy Gunther, she shares six common roots that feed our daily broken promises. I find it helpful. So in all of her clinical and all of her therapy sessions, she's discovered at least these six different themes that kind of crop up in our relationships. And the first is this, unclear agreements. So this is when we make a promise, but our terms are like super unclear and probably on purpose so that we can't be held to them. Another is passive aggression. So this is when we make a promise with our words, but really deep down, uh, kind of at the, in, uh, at the intention level of our hearts, we have no, in, no intention to follow through, despite our words. Uh, self-delusion can be another. This is when we make a promise we honestly think we can keep. Uh, we just don't know where we haven't owned our limitations to do such a thing. Or fear of saying no. This is the fourth. This is when we're allergic to saying no because we want people to be happy with us at all times and in every way. And so we dish out promises that we really have no intention of keeping. A fifth would be this, avoiding criticism in the moment. So this is when we make promises to kind of make everything okay. You know, to avoid criticism in the moment. But again, no intention to follow through. And then lastly, 
unexpected barriers. She says, this is when something unexpected gets in the way of our promise. You know, this is when we say, sorry, um, but something came up. And too often, if we're honest, it's because we don't really account for the unexpected, do we? Or sometimes we even invite the unexpected or even invent the unexpected to get in the way of following through on our promise. And this happens every day, and this happens in every kind of relationship. But what they do is they slowly erode our trust. And here's the thing. We are designed by nature to trust others. That is, as image bearers of God who are made to trust the Lord, we are designed to trust God and to trust others. That is our DNA. And so when we're born, it's as if we get this like pint glass full of trust. And it's brimming with trust. But over time, these things are like small shoulder bumps. And a little bit of trust falls out of the glass. And every so often, our pint glass maybe just gets knocked out of our hands all together. And we can think of those moments. So that eventually, at some point in our life, the cup of trust is empty. In this trust crisis, we could call it a trust crisis, it seems to be in our personal relationships, but also increasingly in our public life. Check out this trend line from Gallup. This line represents the percentage of U.S. adults who have a lot of confidence in nine different institutions. And those institutions are in the chicken scratch underneath, if you can read that. Military, banks, public schools, Supreme Court, Congress, big business, and yes, churches. And what you're looking at with this line is sinking trust. Tanking trust. And if I'm reading this right, in the late 70s, nearly half of us had a pretty solid trust in these major institutions. And now it's only one in four, nearly. And I'm not like Nostradamus or anything, but I'm assuming that line's only going to go down more and more. Well, here's the thing. If you could summarize the Christian life, you could do it this way. The Christian life, following Jesus, is living in light of God's promises. That would be an amazing way to define what it is to be a Christian. It's living in light of the promises of God. Walking with Jesus is a promise-based gig. Orienting all of who we are, externally, internally, present, past, future, emotions, decisions. All of it to the North Star of God's promises. That's what it is. But in a world where public trust and personal trust is eroding, then that kind of complicates things, doesn't it? Is it any wonder that many of us are struggling with God and trusting Him? I think it's no secret that folks are drifting from the God of the Bible, even as they continue to seek the divine in everyday life. And part of me wonders if this is just one outcome of getting our cup knocked one too many times. In other words, I think we've been stood up a lot. And so we're afraid that God will do the same. 
or perhaps we feel he already has. And this can cause a drift from God. I mean, think about it. If relational trust is low with a relationship, then we drift from that person, don't we? If institutional trust is low, then what do we do? We drift from that institution. If divine trust is low, we drift from God. It makes sense. But here's the thing. God doesn't want to see you go, and that's why he has inspired the book of Hebrews and put it in your Bibles. Honestly, the whole point of Hebrews, it's a sermon, an ancient sermon, one of our first ancient sermons recorded for us. It could be summarized in verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. God wants to encourage you with the book of Hebrews to stay near Him, to keep trusting Him. But here's the thing. The way that God does this is totally unexpected. He doesn't scold us into staying near. He doesn't sort of tell us to do better. But the passage we just read and explored a moment ago shows us something shocking to me. God gives us in this passage two over-the-top, unbelievable gifts. I mean, have you ever received a gift... um, Maybe this Christmas that was so far over the top it made you awkward. It kind of made you squirm. You're like, that's awkward. That's too good. That's too nice. No, thank you. You almost like reject it, right? It makes you squirm. It's over the top. It's extravagant. It's it's flagrant. (laughs) Well, that's this passage, friends. This passage is flagrant. This passage is gratuitous, gratuitous behavior from God himself. It's really unnecessary and undeserved. What are these two gifts? God gives us an oath and He gives us an anchor. The first gift that God gives us to keep us from drifting, to increase our waning trust in Him, is an oath. So take another look, if you would, at verses 13 through 18. I'll put it on the screen so you can follow along. God makes a promise to Abraham. We see that starting in verse 13. And this promise is to bless and to grow his family. And why? Well, God wants to bless the nations. God's rescue mission is selecting and choosing and calling this random guy named Abram to himself and then blessing Abram's family to be the vehicle of blessing to the nations. That's God's rescue mission. Okay? And so he promises Abram. He says to Abraham, I will bless you. I will grow your family. And he repeats this promise throughout Genesis over and over again. But the very last time, you know, God makes this explicit promise. He binds his promise with an oath. He binds it with a sworn oath. Now, there are lots of things we can say about that. But here's the big thing to catch. The thing I want you to hear. God does not have to make an oath. God does not have to swear by himself. You know, as verse 16 points out, if you take back a look, it says, for people swear by something greater than themselves. Okay? Right? So that's how oaths work. The whole point of an oath is to bring God into it, and God is God. The whole point of an oath is to kind of beef up your promise. It's like, okay, I promise this, 
and you say that to another person, and then you swear an oath, and it kind of raises the stakes, doesn't it? But God doesn't need to beef up His promises. I mean, honestly, He doesn't need to do it at all. His Word should be enough. Amen? Right? His Word should be enough. He cannot lie, says the author of Hebrews. Verse 18. And here is, I think, a sign of God's tender heart to you this morning. God doesn't have to swear enough, but God knows that oaths mean something to frail humans. Frail humans who have had their trust broken. Verse 16 says, oaths give frail humans confirmation. In all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. What's interesting is that word confirmation, we will meet again. We will meet that word later. It's translated steadfast later. Describing an anchor. Okay, so oaths are, in a way, creating a steadfastness to our word. An oath kind of made people relax into the promise. Think about that. An oath made your promise more steadfast. It made it more confirmed. It kind of said, you know, if I don't switch the laundry, may God strike me. I mean, honestly, that's crazy. Yikes. But in the ancient world where the existence and power of God was not up for question, uh, you could see how an oath would make someone relax, wouldn't you? Especially when you are depending on that person's promise. Well, I think verse 17, if you take a look, is grace upon grace. So when God desired, it was his desire to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's you all, all who lay hold of Jesus by faith, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed his promise with an oath. Grace upon grace. It's not just one unchangeable thing, verse 18. It's two unchangeable things. It's unchangeable thing, God's promise, His word. He cannot lie. And it's His oath. Grace upon grace. It's strong encouragement. It's meant to be strong encouragement. Verse 18. God desires to convince us of his love. And so he doubles up. He binds his promise, his already unshakable promise, with an oath. This is how committed God is to his people and to his mission. And it makes us squirm, doesn't it? It's awkwardly gratuitous. I mean, God does not have to do this, but he does. Because he wants to encourage you to stay near. A few weeks ago, um, I helped someone get up off the ground, and when I did this, uh, I grabbed, not their hands, but I grabbed their wrist. You know what this is. It's the wrist grab. <laughs> and why did I do this? Well, if their grip slipped, I still had them in my grip. That's, that's what the wrist grip is for. <laughs> A wrist grab. Uh, it says basically, non-verbally, it says, I am committed to holding you and helping you up. That's what it, that's what it does. 
It's more than mutual. Mutual would be this. No, no. This is more than mutual. It's asymmetrical, isn't it? It shows a, a commitment, an extra, a double. Well, this oath in verse 14 is in a way a divine risk grab. That's what it is. God doesn't have to do it, but he did so that you would hold fast to his promises. I think this is a paradox worth exploring the rest of your life, friends. The way to hold on to God is to be held by God. God says to you this morning, if your grip on me is loosening, relax into my grip on you. God gives you and But that's not all. We see in the final verses of this section that God gives us an anchor. God gives us an anchor to keep us from drifting. In fact, I think there's good reason to connect the drift in verse 1 of chapter 2 that we looked at at the very beginning and the anchor imagery here in chapter 6. And so take a look at verses 19 through 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So getting into temple imagery, we'll talk about that. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll talk about Melchizedek next week a lot. <coughs> But if we want to better understand the concept of Christian hope, verse 19, hope, what it means to have hope, biblically, not just the way we use hope in our own day in and day out, but to better understand the concept of Christian hope, God wants us to meditate on the image of an anchor, of an anchor. And I think this image tells us a lot, like all images, they tell us a lot about something. But I want to explore three things. Okay, because hope is an anchor, that tells us that hope is a, what I'll call, humble certainty. The words used in verse 19 are sure and steadfast. We have a sure and steadfast, or confirmed anchor. Okay, same word as what an oath brings. We like to say here at Pope that hope is more than wishful thinking. The very name of our church is more than just wishful thinking. Hope is more than even probability. Hope is biblically understood sure and steadfast. It's confirmed. It's certain. It's something we can bank our life on. But it's a humble certainty, okay? Uh, I say humble because the certainty that comes with hope is a relational certainty. Christian hope is not, when I say it's certain, it's not this sort of like philosophical certainty that 
modernism promised. A certainty with zero doubts whatsoever. No, the certainty that we get with God is a relational certainty. It's what missionary Leslie Newbigin calls a proper confidence. It's what philosopher Esther Meek, she compares the certainty we have with hope to the certainty we have with our sort of lifelong car mechanic. We know they're not ripping us off. We know they're not making stuff up when they send us their bill. We just know it. We have a certainty. Why? Decades and decades. My grandpa put his car in that garage. Decades and decades and decades of faithfulness, experienced faithfulness from that car mechanic has given you a certainty. And in the case of God, we're talking thousands and thousands of years of testimony. We're talking God the Holy Spirit giving you assurance in your own heart. We're talking an empty tomb. We're talking His solemn oath that we just described. This makes our hope certain, but very humble. Verse 19, I think, also tells us that our hope is a restored intimacy. Our hope has access to the inner place behind the curtain, it says in verse 19. In the temple, and even in the tabernacle, the house of God, there was a curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. Now, only the high priest could enter behind the most holy place. This is where God's footstool was. This is where the sort of holy presence of God was concentrated, okay? And the only way that a high priest could enter behind the curtain once a year on Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, the only way he could do that is if this high priest brought with them a sacrifice. Why? God is more holy than we imagine. God is more holy than we realize, even this morning. And our sin separates us from His holiness. We were expelled from the garden, remember? We were made for intimacy with the holy God. That's what Genesis 1, the very beginning, shows us. But our unholy sin expelled us from the garden. It's no accident that the temple itself is designed to look like a garden. So that when we enter back into the presence of our holy God, we do so with sacrifice. Why? Because we have been expelled by our sin. Okay? So the high priest comes in. Almost as an image of a new Adam. The high priest comes in behind the curtain with a sacrifice. And, and has that once a year intimacy. And that forgiveness spills out from that moment on the Day of Atonement. But here we read about a priest from the order of Melchizedek. A different priest altogether. Jesus, who enters into the most holy with, not just with a sacrifice, but as a sacrifice. So that once and for all, we could enter in, right behind Him, into the most holy place. He brings us back into the intimacy that we were designed to have with the most holy God. By His death on a cross. And so our hope is a restored intimacy. Are you longing for intimacy? To be known and to be loved at full strength. Well, our hope in Jesus alone brings it. That takes us to verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, 
so we can boldly enter this most holy place. Because Jesus is there. He's there. Our hope, in the end, friends, is Jesus-shaped. Jesus is our hope. And that's why it's certain. Now, I don't sail. Um, I don't sail. But I have rock climbed before. Okay, so when I hear anchor of the soul, um, my mind can also think about a rock climbing anchor. When you climb, the lead climber sets the anchor. Which means if you're following the lead climber, and you're tied in to that rope. It removes the deep fear of climbing. The person who's setting the anchor, they're said to hold the sharp end of the rope. Why is it the sharp end of the rope? Well, because they don't have the anchor. It's still scary. It's still hard to climb a rock. It's still challenging and you will fall, but you won't fall to your death. Because you're anchored. You're steadfast. You're sure. You're attached to the anchor that the lead climber set for you. And so when I see imagery about Jesus being a forerunner in this passage, I think of this. Jesus going to the most holy place and setting an anchor for me. And you know, wind can come and blow me off my hole. Storms can come and make the rock slippery. I can freak out from time to time. I can sit in my harness and just gather my breath. But the point is, I'm anchored. I'm set. This passage tells us that Jesus already ascended into the presence of God. And he set an anchor for you there. And now we journey with ultimate safety. It is a journey. But as one scholar puts it, Jesus, as our hope, has entered the sanctuary and remains there as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. I want to ask, what is causing you, if you can name it, drift from God? Or what often causes you drift from God? Is it a deep fear? Is it a past experience? Is it circumstances kind of crashing into you as if you were on a ship? Is it your own just inner rebellion against God's goodness? A lack of trust of His goodness? Well, here's what I want to say to you. Here's what Hebrews wants to say to you. Here's what God wants to say to you. Jesus is your anchor. He has hooked you. He has attached you to the throne of God. You ain't going anywhere. God gave you an oath. And He gave you an anchor. So may God's faithfulness His faithfulness be the fuel for your faithfulness. 
A life of faithfulness that is not fueled by His faithfulness is like putting water in your gas tank. It looks right, but it won't work. If you look closely even at verse 15, we see the example of Abraham. And we're going to get in the chapter 11 later in Hebrews a big, a big, a much bigger explanation of his faithfulness. He trusted God despite all of his appearance, all appearances in his life. But in this section, one little whisper describing his faithfulness compared to, you know, Hebrews shouting the faithfulness of God. And that ratio, that emphasis is exactly right. May His faithfulness fuel your faithfulness. When you wake up in the morning, consider His oath and His anchor. Do that. When you wake up, where the first thoughts you have is not about what you're about to do today, not about what you're feeling called to do, what you're feeling convicted about, what if it was God's oath and His anchor? And then you know that frames, that frames the rest of our day and the rest of our life as we seek faithfulness with Him. But listen, if we pursue faithfulness with God without remembering His oath and anchor, then it will burn out. You know this. Hope's image is an ancient anchor. Uh, because this passage was dear to the ancient church. <coughs> they were in a storm-tossed ship. The early church was persecuted in ways that we cannot even imagine. But no matter what, they did not drift. Why? God's opening. They loved this passage. God says the same to us this morning. May we relax into the firm wrist grab of God. Would we feel that today? And would it strengthen our grip on it? Lord, we ask for this grace from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about Hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.